Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Rebecca Minkoff and you're listening to Superwomen. Today, I got to interview my cousin via marriage, Audrey Gelman. I first met Audrey actually because she came up to me and she said, do you know that I'm marrying your cousin? And I was like, uh, no. And we went through all my cousins because I have so many to figure out which one it was. Then I found out that she was launching The Wing, which at the time was called something else. And I've just watched what she has done turn into a cultural phenomenon. I can't be more proud or excited and honored to call her my friend. This is Audrey Gelman on Superwomen. I don't want to go into your entire origin story, but I do think that certain experiences that you've had shape what you're doing now. So I would love a little insight into what you did before the wing. Yeah, absolutely. BW before wing. Before the wing era. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up in New York City and I grew up in a family that was very political and, you know, everything going on in the news was always talked about and hashed out over the the dining room table. Um, and so from a very early age, I was really interested in politics. So I went to college and studied political science. And then I got the chance to go work for Hillary Clinton's first campaign for president in 2008. So I was uh, I was 20. I was 20 at the time. Wow. Moved to Washington, got to work in sort of the nerve center of the campaign, which is just like a, you know, dream come true for me. It was really surreal. Um, And my jobs were really to basically support all of the different campaign spokespeople. I would have to transcribe her interviews in real time. So I got to be a very, very fast um, typist. And um, yeah, and just sort of uh, assist with all the work that like the press operation was doing. So it was it was just the most exciting, crazy, like, you know, um, fast paced experience um, for me. And really, I think, just solidified this, like, passion that I had around politics and political campaigns and things like that. So then after she lost to Barack Obama, actually finished um, college. And then at the same time, I started working as a press secretary to um, a guy named Scott Stringer, who is the currently the New York City controller, um, who's an amazing guy, an incredible mentor to me, sort of like a second father. And I really kind of learned like the ropes of New York City politics, which is a fascinating world. And so you worked for him when he was a controller and still is to this day. He was um, the Manhattan borough president. Okay. (laughs) Um, So really local politics. Um, And then I worked on his campaign to become controller. He was running unopposed. And then Elliot Spitzer, who had been the governor of New York, but then resigned due to a prostitution scandal, decided he wanted he wanted to sort of get back in the game. It was the same year that Anthony Weiner also God. ran for mayor. And um, it was a wild summer. Um, it was a three-month sprint of a campaign. And, you know, Scott is such a great guy and has been a public servant all his life. But we also had a big name in the race who had a lot of personal money. So we were outspent 20 to 1 and had to really fight this upward battle. But it was amazing. I mean, for me, it was just 
I love local politics. Um, I continue to be a total political junkie and nerd. Um, but I got to really see the city, like all the different neighborhoods, like in Queens and the Bronx and like the really outer edges of all of the boroughs and all the incredible culture. Um, so it was an amazing way to like experience the city I grew up in in a new way um, and just really learn how politics happens at the most local levels. And so what were some of the skill sets that you learned being that you probably got a degree in PR, you know, by working with these people? What did you take away from that that helped you for your next phase? You know, I was always like a plucky New York City kid. Like I went to public schools. I rode the subway at a really early age. Like I think when you grow up in New York City, you kind of like learn the ropes and and get very street smart at a very young age. And so it was sort of a continuation of that for me, like obviously getting to do it in service of elected officials and like issues that I cared a lot about. But having to deal with the New York Post and having to like, you know, put together a press conference in 45 minutes and literally having to put together like the mic stand for a press conference myself, but also like, you know, calling 1010 wins and CBS radio <laughs> and, you know, all the local folks. And so, yeah, just kind of like being able to problem solve really quickly, being able to put out fires, um, also learning how to you know, really storytell, like to, to get a message out and to use real people in service of, of a message and um, in service of a campaign. So I found that actually, you know, startups are really not that different from campaigns. Like you begin with sort of a shoestring budget, you've got to raise money, you know, you've got to get a message out, you've got to get sort of your diehard supporters behind you, you've got to assemble a team. Um, so it's it's actually a lot of the skills that I learned working on on campaigns were very applicable to the work that I, I realized was in store for me starting a business. So one thing I'd love to know is you went from working in politics. How did you get the idea or go through the journey of starting the wing? So after working on campaigns, I worked as a political consultant and I had to go to D.C. a lot. Um, I had like clients that were all over. And so you know, like a lot of people, especially people who are freelancers or starting businesses, like I wasn't behind a desk all day. Um, I was running around all the time and I would like pack my entire apartment into my shoulder bag and then like proceed to like, you know, need to have to go to a chiropractor because it was so heavy. And so I was using like random places to change and to charge my phone and to get like a few minutes of work done. And it just all felt very nomadic. And, you know, that was really where the original idea for the wing came. Like I was on the Acela going to Washington, D.C., I was like, ch I changed into a suit in the bathroom of the Acela and like the train was like going like back and forth. And I was like, almost fell. And I was just like, this is humiliating. <laughs> and I just thought like, you know, there are like so many women, professional women that are like on the go, busy. And, you know, it would be so interesting to like create a space that was designed with women in mind that they could kind of use, you know, flexibly. And then, you know, at, at that point, I met my my partner, Lauren. Um, she really thought, you know, her idea was really that like you could you would join a space like this, yes, for the convenience, but also to get to meet other women. And it, it was at that point that we met a woman named Alexis Coe, who is a historian. She's the host of The Wings' new podcast, which is a women's history podcast. But at the time, Alexis had written her college thesis on the women's club movement. And she said, like, I heard about your idea. And I don't know if you know this, but the thing that you're trying to create actually existed um, just it was a century ago. 
And at that point, she shared with us like, you know, all of this like documents and bylaws and like, you know, menus and just like all this incredible old ephemera that she had from these women's clubs. There had been over 5,000 of them in the U.S. between sort of the, the between like 1890 and 1920. And they had been, you know, they're sort of an undertold part of women's history, but they'd been really important um, in helping you know, women get the right to vote and sort of organize, you know, around around that principle and just advancing women, giving women the community to have have solidarity and like amplify their voices. And so we realized at that point, you know, oh, we're we're really doing is sort of resurrecting this concept for modern women. And the difference between women 100 years ago and women today is that women today work. We want it to be a place where they can work and start businesses and collaborate and you know, there is a recent study that said that it's going to take women 213 years to catch up to where men are professionally. And, you know, women's colleges were sort of early accelerators for women. Um, and we see the wing as sort of an extension of that out after you leave college, after you're sort of in the world of work. Do you think that I'm now curious about the history of this, but as far as clubs, why did they go away? If there were so many, like, was there a, a movement to say, oh, well, women are getting too powerful. It's 1920 and this is not going to happen. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> far from it. I think they just became they like went out of fashion. I think that they were it was a, you know, just like early sort of wave of feminism. And I think that younger generations identified those kinds of clubs with like their grandmothers. Totally. And so they wanted to do it in a different way. And so there's a great quote. It's like history never repeats itself, but it often rhymes. And that was really what the wing was for us. It was just sort of a new spin on an old concept. So most people who have the dream to start a business will do what you did and they'll start their business. And um, at least from the outside, you know, it caught fire so quickly. The force propelling it forward wasn't just you and your business partner and co-founder. It was like this swell of female-like firestorm. What do you think it was? Was it obviously, I'm, I don't believe in luck. It was obviously your hard work, but also what do you think you did or approached it when you launched to give it that, you know, moth to a flame, like, holy shit, we needed this in our lives and we're aggressively all going to flock to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we ha we are experiencing in some ways, like a women's renaissance. I think that there has been this acceleration of consciousness and activity among women in the past, you know, 18 months. That's remarkable. Um, I think that also crisis breeds innovation. So when, you know, I think that the election of Donald Trump, like all, all of the other things that um, have been part of this, you know, have just transpired in the news, um, have led people, especially women, to be really innovative and come up with, you know, new coalitions or like new ideas, new solutions. You know, we we had the idea for the wing and actually opened the wing three weeks before the election. You know, and and I would say even before any of that happened, there was already like a long waiting list. There was already like, I think, a ton of excitement about the um, the concept of a women's space and this feeling of sort of like, why hasn't anyone done this yet? Like, this is, you know, this is such a great idea. I really need and want this in my life. I think that what happened overnight in some ways with the turn that everything took in the world and in this country, um, I think made the symbol of the wing more meaningful, more significant. It took on a little bit more like depth and importance. 
um, to people. And so it was not just like, this is a cool thing to have. It's like, I really need this because this, you know, this is, this is like the place that I come to feel like I can make sense of the world, which is in such a crazy state right now. And I think that also community is so important. I think that right now people are, the, the world is moving so fast. The news is moving so fast. People are behind their phones, like, you know, at all hours of the day and night. And I think that there is this like hunger and longing for community. There's a really amazing study called Why We Gather. And it was the Harvard Divinity School worked on it. And they sort of looked at, you know, millennials are going to churches and synagogues and mosques uh, less. You know, there there are less of these sort of like community centers that were the focal point of American life. What are the modern forms of community going to look like? Um, and, you know, fitness is a place like CrossFit. People see, you know, have built community at CrossFit. And, and for us, the wing is, is one of those spaces um, where it's bringing like real belonging and, um, and community to the women who are a part of it. And I'm curious to know, because you recently, well, you raised money, obviously, your Series A to to fund the beginning, and then you recently re- raised a Series B. So when most people raise a lot of money to the outside person, they might think, oh, she raised $32 million. Like, where does that go? Or how did you decide that was the amount? And and what do you do with the business from there? Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's different for every company. I mean, I think I'm still getting used to the idea that, like, I'm a businesswoman. <laughs> and, you know, for us, I think what what dictated growth was demand. So there was just, there was way more demand than there was supply. We had, you know, this this almost like, you know, experiment that we did in this relatively small space. And it was packed. And there was, you know, so much demand and interest in more people who wanted to be part of it. Um, so for us, you know, that meant, okay, we have, we have proof of concept. We want to sort of put our foot on the gas and, you know, begin to take the steps to scale the business and to scale the business, you know, we needed capital. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's a process that is different for everyone. For us, it was, um, you know, finding investors that believed in the mission and what we were doing and also brought with them unique sort of skill sets that could help us scale and succeed. I think that it's exciting to announce that you've like, raise money because it demonstrates like, you know, validation and belief in the concept and all those kinds of things. But I think like the more important thing is just like the actual real milestones of the business. You know, it's not about money. It's about like, what have you done? So like we opened five spaces in two years and we've got, you know, a ton more on, on our roadmap. We launched a magazine. We launched a podcast. We are launching childcare in January and just continuing to introduce like new amenities, continuing to innovate and just like be really creative in terms of the way we we run the business. And so I think that like it's it's essential and it's the one of the hardest things to do is, is to raise capital, but I also think sometimes people can be can see like the raising of capital as the milestone when really it should just be like what you're actually doing to innovate with your business. You come off as at least from what I see when I'm not with you um and when I'm with you as very calm, um not stressed, but I can only imagine what you're going through and not just launching the wing, but then opening up the five locations and the magazine and, you know, all the expansion. How do you deal? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a really good question. And I think that starting and running a business is lonely. You know, part of, you know, what's uh, what makes me able to do it is having a business partner. And so I always really recommend it to people who are thinking of starting a business. It's just you really, you need someone that that has skills you don't have, but also someone who can like be there in the foxhole with you. 
And, you know, my, my mom's a therapist. I grew up in the Upper West Side. I grew <laughs> up in like a, you know, sort of like a Woody Allen movie. And so therapy and, and all of talking about what's going on and what's going on under the hood is, you know, a big part of the milieu that I grew up in. Um, you know, something that's really cool that we do at The Wing is we have a ton of events. So we'll have, you know, someone like you, like, you know, an w- amazing woman who started a business come speak or, you know, a movie screening or book club or pie making class. Um, we also do support circles um, and they're sort of anonymous ways for members to get together and and talk about what's going on under the hood. So perfectionism, pressure, anxiety, depression, grief, loss, you know, recovery. And so, you know, I think we're all going through it and pressure is an aggravator, you know, of anxiety and stress and things like that. And so um, I would be completely lying if I didn't say that, you know, it's it's not really, really hard. I was actually recently looking in the wing recently launched um, an app, which is has a directory of all of our members and you can kind of network in it and get in touch with people. And I saw that we had a member who is an anxiety coach. Um, and I actually just reached out to her and was like, I'd really love to know more about how you do that. Like, <laughs> I, I have some anxiety. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think that, again, like community is an, and fellowship is an important part of life, like human beings need it. And so, I think just as much as possible, getting out of isolating, getting out of the feeling of like, I'm alone with all this pressure. I'm getting like feeling crushed by all this pressure and sort of like reaching out and opening yourself up to both like sharing what's going on with other people in your community and just, yeah, just like fighting against that urge or impulse to isolate. Because I think that's when it really gets like hard and overwhelming. Totally. So I would love to talk about sacrifices. I know like prior to me having kids, I would, it didn't matter. I would work till midnight. I'd work on the weekends. I was like, hi, husband, I'll see you in a couple years. Um, so talk to me about any sacrifices you, you made or have made or continue to make. I think that there is this myth that like you, you can, you know, have it all. You can't, there, there are sacrifices that you're going to have to make and like some are going to be harder than others. I mean, I, I really miss my friends. I think like, (laughs) you know, the great thing is that I have so many like colleagues and coworkers that like are, are my close friends too. And that also the wing is this community of people who I have these, you know, amazing friendships with, but just in the sense of just kind of like making dinner, watching TV, hanging out, like quote unquote, hanging out is like not something I get to do um, very often. And I, um, I miss that a lot. And I think you, you're not around as much as you want to be. Totally. I, I, I take it as a win now. If I see my friends once a month, I'm like, yes, got it in there this month. One of your personal mottos is for me, sitting still is harder than any kind of work. That's from Annie Oakley. Yes. Oh my God. I love that quote. I mean, it just, it's, you know, I think that that's just always who I've been again, since I was just kind of like a shit starting, like obnoxious, like New York city kid who just like, I, you know, I think that there's this amazing trend now and, you know, we're seeing it just with some of these new women who are like, who've just been elected to Congress and they're sort of saying like, you know, to hell with like waiting our turn and like waiting in line. And, you know, we were like, we're impatient because what we're doing is so important and we believe in what we're doing. And I just always had that kind of impatience around like new ideas and, you know, just wanting to like sort of just like not get caught up in like the bureaucracy or in the in in the stratification of like, you know, you wait your turn and ask for permission. And so 
I love to like be busy. It's the thing that fuels me. Um, it gets me inspired. And I think that there's just a lot of people like that. I do think it, it's important to like figure out what are the meditative, quiet things that, you know, one can incorporate into their life. So it's not all like go, go, go. But yeah, I think that that's just the energy that that I've always had. And it's amazing to have started the wing because now I have a place to sort of funnel all that energy into. What would you say is your guiding path to fostering camaraderie among women? Because I feel like so long we've been dividing even ourselves, uh, take away the, the male element, right? Then then you get us alone and then we just shit talk each other and we, you know, <laughs> criticize each other. So what do you think we can do to, or what are you doing to like ensure that, that now that we are together, what, how we get stronger? I think that a lot of people ask us like, oh, you're going to have a space for women. Aren't they all going to like have cat fights and claw at each other or whatever? <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, absolutely not. But like, you know, if that's the sort of, if that's the tone that you set, then that's what will happen. If you set a different tone, then, you know, you bring a different energy into it. And so for us, it was like, New York is a competitive, crazy place. Like we want to create a space that feels welcoming and safe when you walk in the door and that where you can kind of like come in sweatpants and like just bring with you whatever is going on in your life and like be, you know, come as you are. And so that was really like, that was the tone that we wanted to set and the kind of warmth that we wanted to create around the wing is that like, you don't walk in and like feel like you're being like looked up and down or judged or you're not wearing whatever the latest this or that, or, you know, just like that you can just be you and so I think one of the things is just setting a tone of like warmth and openness and like warm heartedness. And then the other is about like encouraging honesty. And and I think that honesty is such a disarming thing. I do think that like when you you think you might have some feelings about a certain person, and then you like sit down across from them and, you know, talk for like five minutes about who you really are, or what you're really going through. And like all of that falls away. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third thing I say is like, you know, is kind of ground rules. Like I think that it's important to have sort of like codes of conduct around like what sort of like what the a value system is or what's expected or what's not, you know, permitted or welcome. Um, and I think that one of the things that's like sucks about like Twitter is that like there's no ground rules and like it's just used as like a weapon every day to like say mean things and hurt people and there's like Nazis on it and all this stuff. And so I do think that a key part of like building belonging and trust is also having having sort of a code of conduct. What makes you decide to say no to something? Because you have so much inbound, people want lots of things from you or, and or want to attach themselves to the wing and be a part of it. Like, where do you go either no to my personal time or no, you know, no to these opportunities? How do you, how do you learn to build that muscle? Because I feel like when I started my company, I was just saying yes to anything all the time just because I needed to get it out there, you know? So I was just like, you want me to speak a million times a year? You want me to go on the road? Yes, yes, yes. Like whatever it is. When do you sort of go, okay, that's it. I, you know, I have certain rules about like, you know, uh, four meetings a day, you know, real meetings. Like I think that there it's, you just also lose, like when you're packing your day with things like you um, and you're over scheduling yourself and you're over committing, you're not doing any of those things well, or you're not able to actually like be present or be creative. So certain things are just around like managing on a day, like taking it kind of one day at a time and making sure that like I'm not over committed and overextended. Um, you know, it's really like flattering when anyone wants to do stuff with you. So, you know, I think it's important to always have that like, remember that, you know, um, not lose sight of that. I do think that like, there's just, 
things that make sense and things that don't make sense. And I think that, you know, there's when there's like mutual exchange of value, then like it's something that's great to do when it's imbalanced. Maybe it isn't. And when it's just going to be a distraction from like, you know, wanting to work on the core thing that you're doing, then, you know, it's probably not the right idea then. So I think oftentimes it's just like still being really flattered that people want to collaborate with us or do things with us, but knowing that like now just may not be the right time for certain opportunities. Right. So being that you worked for different politicians and you know that space, something I'm always curious about is where do you get your information and how do you judge when it's right? Because I think for myself and I know for our listeners, like you don't know which news outlet to like necessarily look at because they're both so extreme, right? Or you're not sure if what you read in the paper is right or wrong or has an agenda. So how do you sort of filter that out and go, okay, I know this person or I now that I know where to get my information, you know, it's real. Yeah, I have. I mean, I have probably too robust of a media diet um, <laughs> and you know, the, I think that comes a little bit from like working on the other side of it. Yeah. Um, in, you know, in a political context, I, a lot of my like fr- really close best friends are, you know, journalists. And so journalism is something that I think is, you know, vital and important and under siege, unfortunately, in this country. You know, I like the New York Times, you know, <laughs> you can't, you can't lose. Sometimes I don't agree with the people in the op-ed section, but um you know, just incredible journalism, like the Washington Post, too. I, you know, Twitter, unfortunately, is still in some ways like the place I get my news. I'm trying to wean myself off of it a little bit. Um, but I yeah, I think that like, you know, podcasts are increasingly like a really great way. Like I I listen to like the Daily every day and I listen to like, you know, the NPR um, podcasts and the New Yorker podcasts that are very kind of news based I watch like Chris Hayes every night on MSNBC. I don't know. I, I try to also not like oversaturate myself with with things um, because it can just become like you're just listening to the same information over and over again, like, you know, through different people. But yeah, I think like, you know, there, there are reasons why like some of the sort of great institutions of news like are still what they are. And so I recommend starting there. Good to know. Two questions I ask every guest just because I like I like to sort of peel back uh, at least with the first question, you know, what people maybe just only see on social, but what would people be surprised to know about you? Give me anything. I've had people say they take mm. three showers a day. Sometimes I, I share that a shower for me is a baby wipe. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Surprised to learn about me. Um, I'm so boring. I feel like I have like four. I'm obsessed with antiquing. Antiquing is my new passion. Okay. Antiquing is like, I also just, I I think it's like an extension of sort of like thrifting was a big interest for me, like Mm -hmm. in in like high school and in college. And now it's like, it's sort of shifted into antiquing. So I really love going to antique markets that have like a million different vendors. Yes. And I will like drive really far. I recently went to Amish country with some friends just to do that. Um, And yeah, I really love like, getting at like I, I don't know I think like I'm I'm born and raised in New York City and very much like in and of New York City like I had like Zay bars like shot into my veins as like a child but um it's you know I really like going getting like out of the city and being kind of like upstate and like around like farms and in small towns like I um there's a part of me that would want to leave New York and like go live in like a small town and go to like, you know, community meetings and stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) 
weigh in on like town ordinances. I don't know. So maybe that's that's in my future. Love it. And then my last question for you would be, what would you want to leave um, any of our listeners with advice-wise? could be along any subject, love, business. I really think, I, I saw this quote recently that said, your gut is your guardian angel. Like, I think that trusting your gut is so important. Like, I... I did not go to business school. I do not have, you know, I didn't work at McKinsey or, you know, Bain or one of these places that like people, you know, go to and then they start businesses. Um, A lot of what we've built with the wing has just really been from instinct and from gut. And so I think that like there'll be a lot of experts. You'll meet with investors who will tell you like, no, you should do it this way or you should do it this way. And I think you really have to just tune a lot of that noise out and like listen to your gut because... That's what's, I just, I, that is the thing I trust more than anything else. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed me talking to Audrey about how she built an incredibly amazing, impactful business um, that I'm often uh, in awe of. And uh, don't forget to download, rate, and review us. Today, I wanted to read a review. It's a, it's a one star. It said, disappointing. Such a great podcast, but so disappointed that you had to be so polarized on politics and social issues. Superwomen exist on both sides of the political spectrum. The cursing is also disappointing, as some of the episodes would be nice to use for development of work. This is from Working Mama 6. I wanted to read this one because... My goal with this podcast is not to be solely existing on one side of the political spectrum. And you are totally right. Superwomen exist on both sides of the political spectrum. And I'm happy to interview anyone who has differing views. Um, my lane is women and the rights of women and uh, the treatment of women. And that is what I like to highlight and talk about. And I think, you know, everyone can agree to disagree. This is not putting down anyone else. And as far as the swearing, you know, I've been told I have a trucker's mouth and um, I kind of love it. So I'm sorry that those can't be used for development at work, but hopefully some of the episodes are helpful. And thanks for writing in your review. 